0: of Abraham for some time, but I'm, I'm taking a little hiatus from that tonight. We've got about two or three lessons left in that series, and, and t- tonight I've chosen to, to diverge from that to focus on the letter of 2 Timothy. Now, as you know, our theme this year, our theme is 2020 vision, focusing on what really matters. And, and as we've centered around that theme, with it comes some necessary personal evaluation, in fact, we've been doing this study on Sunday mornings about blindfolds because we're looking at ourselves to see if we are blinded by something that's preventing us from seeing clearly, spiritually speaking. And tonight, I want to look at the letter of 2 Timothy as we kind of focus in on this f- theme of 2020 vision because I believe the book of 2 Timothy poses some evaluation questions for us. But before we dive into this book, and before we look at these questions that I want to emphasize tonight, we need to understand why this letter, the letter of 2nd Timothy, is so unique in the New Testament. One reason it's unique is because it's one of only four epistles written to an individual. The other epistles would be 1st Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Only four of the letters that we have in the New Testament were directed towards individuals rather than congregations. That makes 2 Timothy unique because it's in the minority in that regard. And think about who it's being written to. Timothy was a young man who became one of Paul's most reliable traveling companions. He was recruited by Paul on his second missionary journey, and from that point forward, it seems that Timothy left Paul's side only when Paul commissioned him to an assignment. Paul was willing to utilize Timothy in some really, really challenging Ministerial roles. For instance, Paul sent him to uh, Thessalonica to establish and encourage the Thessalonians' faith. He sent him to Corinth to troubleshoot shoot some problems in the congregation there and to remind them of the ways of Christ. And he, and he sent him to deal with false teachings and appoint elders in the church of Ephesus. So you have these, these unique assignments that Paul determined Timothy was fit to oversee. And Timothy became such a constant figure in Paul's work that he's included in the introduction to more than half of the Pauline epistles. And Paul referred to him on multiple occasions as his beloved and faithful child in the Lord and as a fellow worker. So Timothy is is a unique character in Scripture. He is a young man that gained a great deal of esteem from the Apostle Paul throughout his ministerial career. And that's to whom this letter has been penned. But it's not only a unique letter because it's penned to a, an individual rather than a congregation. It's also a unique letter because Paul wrote it from a prison cell. You know, there's only five, I believe there's only five letters that Paul wrote from prison. And 2 Timothy is one of those. You can look in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8 where Paul refers to himself as a prisoner. And in chapter 2 and verse 9, he says that he has been bound with chains as a criminal And and so Paul is not in the best of situations here. But we know Paul's no stranger to imprisonment. We read of his time behind bars overnight in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. We we hear of his two-year stint in a Caesarea in prison in Acts chapter uh, 23 through 26. We read of his initial two-year house arrest in Rome in Acts chapter 28. So we know Paul has experience in prison, and his experience in prison does not always get him down. In fact, when Paul wrote the book of Philippians, he wrote it with such anticipation of his release that it's one of the most hope-filled letters you'll come across in the New Testament. But that's not the case in Second Timothy. See, the, the, the main reason Second Timothy is unique is because it's generally considered to be the last epistle Paul wrote before his death. See, unlike the other prison epistles, Paul doesn't write 2 Timothy with an anticipation of release. He writes it with an anticipation of death. You see that in the fourth chapter, where we just read verses 6 and 7, where he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. According to uninspired tradition, it's after this letter that Emperor Nero, sometime around AD 67, uh, beheaded Paul. And so 2 Timothy, as a letter, depicts Paul in a very precarious place. It's, It's regarded as his last biblically preserved correspondence before his martyrdom. And so Paul writes in this letter with a different perspective than he might in other letters. He writes with this awareness that his end is near. And I think because of that, he poses some spiritual evaluation questions for Timothy that I think are relevant to you and I. And tonight, as, as we kind of reflect on this theme we have for 2020 of focusing on what really matters, I think these three questions are pertinent. The first Questions that I want you to consider is the question, are you prepared? Now, here's the thing. You, if you aren't in Second Timothy chapter 4, go ahead and turn there with me. We'll be picking up our study there. But when I ask this question and when I uh, assume that that's a question that Paul is asking here, I'm not asking it in the sense of, are you prepared for eternity? Are you prepared for what comes next? I'm asking is, as, are you prepared for the work of ministry? See, as Paul faces the end of his life, preparation seems to be on his mind. But he's not so much worried about his own preparation as he is Timothy's preparation. Throughout this letter, Paul encourages Timothy to be prepared for some difficult days. In chapter 3, he said, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. In verse 12 of that same chapter, he says all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So Paul is reminding Timothy or pointing out to Timothy that there's going to be some difficult times ahead, that he needs to expect that. And they're going to be difficult because people aren't going to be pursuing God. And they're going to be difficult because there's going to be false teachings that come up. And and there's going to be people who want to hear what they want to hear, not what God has to say. And so Paul is warning Timothy of difficult days and that's why he instructs him in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2 to be prepared. Be prepared to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And he indicated that such preparation necessitates that Timothy do his best to present himself to God as one approved, a worker who, is not, who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, that he says back in chapter 2 and verse 15. You see, Paul has this emphasis all throughout the letter on Timothy being ready because he is about to face some difficult days that are going to involve people wanting to hear what they want to hear rather than what God wants to say. And so he's, preparing, he's telling Timothy to be prepared to share God's word. And being prepared in that fashion necessitates being a fervent student of his words. So Paul told Timothy that a prepared life is a life devoted to God's word, but, but what does that kind of devotion entail? Well, devotion to God's word in, involves ingraining it. You can go back to Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18 through 21. you can read about the expectation of the children of Israel. The Israelites were instructed to lay up God's words in their hearts and in their souls. And that same text in Deuteronomy chapter 11 goes on to instruct them to bind God's words as a sign on their hand, to fix God's words as frontlets between their eyes, to write them on the doorposts of their house and on their gates. What's the point of God is trying to make with this figurative language. Why, why is God calling on his people to fix his word in their hearts, to tie his words on their hands, to bind his words on their foreheads, to write his words on their doors and their gates? God's instructing his people to make his word dominant, to make it primary, to make it preeminent in their lives. Binding God's word to your hands signifies that it controls your acts, actions. Affixing God's word To your eyes signifies that it guides your life. Writing God's Word on the entrance of your house signifies that it, it governs your home. Being devoted to the Word is not about the physical manifestation of Scripture on our bodies, but the ingraining of God's Word on our hearts and our minds so that we instinctively live by them. Paul wants Timothy to be prepared, and part of that preparation is going to necessitate him ingraining God's Word into his life. But it also necessitates that he, he desire God's word. Because devotion to the word necessitates desiring it. Proverbs chapter 2 and the first five verses say this, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to, to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The search for God's word is compared by Solomon to the search for wealth. The wisdom from God is is right here in this book. If you look for it, if you desire it like someone desires silver or gold, if you search for it like others would search for hidden treasures, then you will find it. Paul is instructing Timothy to be prepared. And he can be prepared if he will ingrain God's word, if he will desire God's word, and finally, if he will interact with it. See, the Jews in Berea are an example to us of somebody who not only desired, but intentionally interacted with God's word. After hearing Paul teach, Luke tells us that they received the word with all eagerness, and they examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Acts chapter 17, verse 10 and 11. And it's that consistent interaction with the word that caused Luke to say the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. See, there are two important observations to be made about the church in Berea. First, these, these Jews, they, they did not accept what they heard at face value. They didn't just believe it because Paul said it. They spent time consulting God's Word to find confirmation of what they were hearing. They interacted with God's Word. They understood that, that a mortal could be wrong, but the words of the immortal would always be correct. And they engaged in this exercise, daily. They studied God's Word, not just on the day that they gathered with the body of believers at the synagogue. They engaged with it. They interacted with it every day of the week. The Berean Jews show us that devotion to the Word means that one is in the Word, and it's got to be habitual. It's got to be consistent. Not sporadic. It's a good opportunity for me to ask you this. You don't have to answer... It's rhetorical. How many of you chose to read through your Bible this year? How many of you are on pace? How many of you have fallen behind? Admittedly, I've fallen behind, and I don't even know how many days anymore. (laughs) There's a lot of catch-up I've got to do. But it's so easy to not desire to not ingrain, to not interact with God's Word, isn't it? It's so easy to, to, to say, yeah, I'll get around that to that later. Or, 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 or hey, you know what? I'm going to be studying it when I go to Bible class on Wednesday night. I'm going to be studying it in Bible class on Sunday morning, and I'm going to hear some lessons from it when Kyle preaches. So therefore, hey, I'll be in the Word. Isn't that good enough? But that's not preparing ourselves. That's not the preparation that Paul is calling Timothy to here. Be ready in season and out of season. Are you ready to communicate God's message to someone when they come and ask you for the reason of the hope that you have? Are you prepared to communicate what they need to do to become a child of God? Are you prepared to help them deal with the difficulties that they're facing by sharing with them what God says? I'm not saying you need to have the whole book memorized. Shouldn't you be equipping yourself as one who claims to be a follower of God to share with others the message of the one you follow? At least in a cursory sense. At least be able to communicate to some degree what they need to hear from his word to apply it to their life. At the end of his life, one of Paul's chief concerns for his protege was that his protege would be prepared at all times to share God's word. Does that describe you? Are you prepared? But I also noticed something else, another evaluation question that Paul emphasizes in the book of 2 Timothy. And it's the question, are you confident? Looking again at 2 Timothy chapter 4, one of the most popular and most well-known passages in all of 2 Timothy appears here. And it's Paul's declaration of confidence in his salvation. It's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, where he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul makes a declaration here that every Christian wants to be able to make. But let me ask you a question. And it's a question I'm certain you've been asked before. If your life ended right now, or if Jesus returned right now, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? It's a yes or no question. Actually, it wasn't a yes or no question. It was supposed to be a yes or no question. <laughs> so let's rephrase and start that over and forget that I ever did that. Remember, I didn't go to sleep till like 3 a.m. this morning. If Jesus returned right now, would you go to heaven? If you died right now, would you go to heaven? That's a yes or no question. But how do so many people answer that question? What's the most common answer to that question? You've probably given it yourself at some point in time. I hope so. You know, I think Paul would be disappointed with such an answer. Maybe even a little bit appalled by such an answer. Because when he reflected on his eternal future, he was completely confident in his admission to heaven. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that salvation is a guaranteed lot for every individual. Scripture clearly teaches that we receive salvation when we emerge from the waters of baptism, after confessing the identity of Jesus Christ as the risen Son of God, and after repenting of our sins. But Scripture also clearly teaches that salvation, once received, can be lost. And I believe Scripture identifies three primary ways we can lose our salvation. One is by committing spiritual suicide, by deliberately deciding to stop believing because you, you cannot please God without faith, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 tells us. And if we just stop believing in God, if we just stop believing that his son was Jesus Christ. If we just stop believing that Jesus is our Savior, if, if we stop the whole faith process, then certainly we can compromise our salvation. Another way in which we can lose our salvation is by permitting spiritual starvation. What I'm talking about is, is a failure to exercise or nourish your faith. Think about James chapter 2, where it ta- says that faith without works is dead. If you're not exercising your faith, then you have a dead faith. And certainly a dead faith does not qualify for salvation. Or, or think about the, the nourishment your faith needs to grow. And you think about uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, where we're told to add to our faith, to supplement our faith. And there's this list of these different characteristics and these different traits that are supposed to be included, that are supposed to be grown, that are to develop. And so you have this nourishment that's necessary. Or, or think about the instructions to not forsake the assembling and the nourishment that is supposed to be provided when we gather together to stir one another up. And Scripture indicates that our failure to mature our faith, our failure to develop our faith, our failure to nourish our faith can compromise our salvation as well. And the third way that we can compromise our salvation is by what we're going to call permitting spiritual strangulation. That's when we allow sin to persist in our lives, think about those lists of sin you come across where, where you can go to Galatians chapter 5 and the works of the flesh, or you can go to 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 6 and you can see these, these activities in which people have engaged that will prevent them from inheriting the kingdom of God. Right there is a declaration that if you continue in those things, you cannot receive salvation. So there are ways in which we can lose our salvation, Scripture clearly teaches. And so it's erroneous to adopt the theology of once saved, always saved. But let me say this, I believe it's equally erroneous to adopt the theology of always trying, never sure. In other words, I believe that God's word gives us enough evidence to examine ourselves to determine whether or not we are in the faith, as 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5 says. So if you have received salvation according to God's plan and have not lost it due to one of the aforementioned conditions, then you can have confidence in your salvation. And we need to be a people who believe that. Because Paul believed it. And because of something that we're told in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Father. No, I'm adding a verse. For the forgiveness of your sins. I, see, I trolled off into another verse automatically. I need to ingrain the word better. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. This passage is not referring to a gift given by the Holy Spirit. Instead, it's referring to the gift that is the Holy Spirit. And what is that gift? Paul refers to it as a guarantee in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. He said, The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. In 2nd. Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5, he refers to it as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as a guarantee or a deposit. And why would he use that metaphor? It's a financial metaphor. It refers to a first installment or a down payment on something. And we understand that. We understand deposits. We understand down payments because we make such financial obligations on major purchases as a sign of good faith that we will uphold our end of the agreement and god is essentially doing the same thing as one author summarized the spirit given as a pledge is god's guarantee to us that every promise he has made he will fulfill and the ultimate promise being heaven That means that the Holy Spirit, as our deposit or our guarantee or our pledge, whichever term you prefer, is intended to create confidence in our salvation. So as long as you retain the gift of the Holy Spirit, you're in a saved state. And you can have confidence in your salvation. Does the presence of the Holy Spirit mean you'll you'll never mess up? No. No. Does it mean you can never lose your salvation? No. That gift, that gift of the Holy Spirit simply means that you have a source of confidence in your salvation and as long as the Spirit is in you, you are in Christ. Why don't we assert that confidence more? Why do we only assert the confidence that Paul speaks of at a funeral? Why do we only make reference to the, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith only at a funeral. Yeah, okay, the finishing the race part, I get it. But why don't we have that same degree of confidence right now in our salvation? Why do we answer the, are you going to heaven question with, I hope so, instead of a definitive yes? At least that, shouldn't that be our aim? our goal, our objective, to have such confidence like Paul? Are you confident? It's another question to evaluate yourself by. But there is a third question that Paul presents here for us to evaluate our lives by, and that is the question, are you available? See, when you look at Paul's story here in 2 Timothy, we find out that Paul's lonely. Paul is in a situation where he's in prison and nobody's with him, save one person. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, and and in verse 9, we find he gives this instruction to Timothy. He says, do your best to come to me soon. If you skip to verse 11, you'll find out he he says, Luke is alone with me. Luke's the only one here. And then he gives instruction for uh, Timothy to get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me in ministry. In verse 13, if you skip down there, Paul says, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. In verse 16, he says, At my defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth, and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he concludes in Verse 21 by saying do your best to come before winter he wants Timothy desperately wants Timothy to make his way to him in Rome where it appears he's in prison and he wants him to get there as soon as possible and I think it's because he doesn't want to be alone during the difficult days that lie ahead for him whether or not Timothy makes it there in time we don't know but one thing Timothy was but one thing Timothy was faced with was a decision as to whether or not he would make himself available to Paul at this moment Timothy, were like many Christians today, he might think to himself, I'm too busy right now to make this trip. Or I I can't afford to go to Rome right now. That kind of sacrifice of my time and my energy and my resources, no, that's too much right now. Paul's got Luke there. He doesn't really need me. Somebody else will take care of his need, but right now I just can't go. And I think it's significant that Paul gave high praise to another individual in this book. Another individual who, earlier in this letter, made himself available to Paul. Back in 2 Timothy 1, verse 16 and 17, Paul mentioned a guy named Onesiphorus. And look at what he said about Onesiphorus. He said, He often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me and earnestly found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. I would imagine that, we don't talk much about Onesiphorus. That you don't hear his name brought up much and no kids are named after Onesiphorus. But this individual left such an impact on Paul that Paul asked the Lord to grant mercy on his household and he instructed Timothy to greet his household. We know very little about this guy because 2 Timothy is the only place he's ever mentioned. But we do know that he was a big deal to Paul and it's because Onesiphorus was available when Paul needed him. You see, Onesiphorus teaches us that sometimes the greatest service we can offer is our presence in somebody's life. Paul's alone in prison. He's been deserted by several that he thought were friends, that he thought were fellow workers. Demas is specifically mentioned in Philemon 1, and verse 24, as someone who deserted him. And Onesiphorus' presence let Paul know that he still mattered to somebody. And Onesiphorus made sure that Paul felt that concern frequently because when you look back at chapter 1, verse 16, you'll notice that Onesiphorus often refreshed Paul. Often refreshed Paul. Sometimes the most important thing you can do when it comes to serving others is to be present. Think about it. When nobody comes to see you, do you feel like they really care? When no one calls you or reaches out to you in your time of despair, do you think that eBay cares? Maybe that's why it's so significant in that parable of the sheep and the goats. When you look at that list of things that the sheep did for others, it's times of need that are being addressed. Even just visiting someone while they were sick or in prison is the same in that list. As giving water to the one who's thirsty and food to the one who's hungry and clothing to the one who's naked. Because sometimes our presence is the most important thing. Imagine Paul in this prison, unvisited. This apostle who had carried the gospel across the nations, who had established all of these congregations who had made all of these acquaintances who became fellow workers who had led so many people to salvation and yet no one is there to be with him. Paul is an icon in church history, particularly when it comes to missionary efforts. If anybody was going to have visitors, you would think it would be Paul. Yet he is the one in prison feeling deserted. Feeling abandoned feeling alone. Then there comes an Onesiphorus searching for Paul and refreshing him often because he knew that his presence told Paul that Paul still mattered to someone. You know, Solomon wisely said in Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 17 that a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. And Solomon was indicating that one's presence during crisis is a reminder to others that they're not alone. It's important to know that you're not alone. Even the Son of God wanted to know that he was not alone when he was in that garden and he just asked his friends to stay up and pray for one hour. Sometimes the greatest service you can offer is just being available. So when we look at the request of Paul to Timothy here, it provides an evaluation question of, are you available? Tonight, I know my lesson is kind of random. In the midst of an Abraham series, and we're going to stop and look at 2 Timothy for an evening. But I think evaluation of ourselves is essential for spiritual growth and for ensuring that we focus on what really matters. And as I scan the book of 2 Timothy, this book that's not very long, only four chapters, and and not very long chapters at that, and I hear the words of Paul, a man who is at the end of his life, a man who has written so many beautiful and challenging theological texts that we have access to. And his requests are quite simple in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Requests that challenge Timothy to be prepared. A request that challenges Timothy to be confident in his own salvation, just as Paul is confident in his. And a request for Timothy to make himself available for Paul, to serve Paul. It makes me question how I would answer those questions. Am I prepared? Am I confident? Am I available? Tonight, I challenge you to evaluate yourself on those three questions as well. And if you don't like the answer you give when you evaluate yourself, then now we have an opportunity to make a change. And if you need to change something about your life tonight, We invite you to come. We invite you to turn it over to God. We invite you to let us help. If you need to respond, won't you come? While together we stand and sing.